This is a Hot Pie Original. Forgiveness does not change the past, but it does enlarge the future. Paul Boys. This is an area of forgiveness that we will have to deal with because life events create hurt, disappointment, and anger in all of us. So when life happens, what do we do about it? Do we ignore it, discount our feelings and hope they go away, stay angry for the rest of our lives, or confront the issue? The healthy response is to confront the issue, forgive ourselves and the others involved. The art of forgiveness is a learned talent. The reason it's important to forgive is simple. It costs us too much negative energy to stay in non-forgiveness of ourselves or others. If we stay stuck, we obsess over and over about the problem or the person. As we obsess, we re-traumatize ourselves and eat up our energy for our business or for our lives. How do we know if we have forgiven someone? Well, if you can think of them and feel neutral or slightly disappointed, but no intense feelings of anger, guilt, or sadness, then you are in the zone of forgiveness. Intense feelings keep us connected. The umbilicus of anger and hurt is just as strong as the umbilicus of love. Ask yourself these questions to see if you have moved through non-forgiveness to a forgiving zone. Number one, Does the thought of someone or something cause you to feel anger, irritable, or depressed? Number two, are there days that you feel stuck and unable to move forward in life, like something is holding you back? Number three, are there people that you refuse to talk to or interact with because of a grudge, or do you avoid these people altogether? Number four, Are you resentful or angry at certain people who refuse to change their life because their actions are in the way of your personal or business success? If the answer to any of those is yes, you are still in non-forgiveness. Now, we're going to listen right now to an interview with an exceptional therapist named Jerry Spaulding, who's an expert on non-forgiveness. Then I'm going to be back with some specific how-tos to resolve forgiveness issues. We're in our leading experts section, and I'm talking with Jerry Spaulding in Dallas, Texas. Hi, Jerry. Hi, Pat. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Good. Now, Jerry, you and I have worked together for years, and I'd just like you to share with uh, our listeners some of your credentials and background, and we're going to be talking about forgiveness, and I think you're uniquely qualified to do that from uh, many aspects. I have actually been a therapist since the mid-60s and specializing in body language and communications. And then um, for the period of time we have known each other, I have worked in business. So I've worked 20 years in one form of business and another 10 in other forms of business doing coaching and um, also uh, writing training programs that uh, work for people. But especially the coaching and helping people reach their potential as um, the human capital of the business community is has been part of my focus. And you also have a ministerial background. 
Uh, I do. Uh, prior to all that, I, I did get a seminary degree and uh, was a minister for a while. Turned out I was a better coach counselor uh-huh. than a preacher. But uh, the it has always, um, as a result, uh, helped me focus on an integration of faith issues with what we do in our daily lives. Well, and that's really what we're coming to in this um this tape and C-Day, we're talking about the whole issue of forgiveness, forgiveness of self, forgiveness of others. And that seemingly, it sort of sounds like this has nothing to do with business, but I really believe that it does. And um, that not forgiving ourselves can truly be one of the biggest drains for a home-based business uh, that that exists. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I, one of the things I've experienced with people in life is that a sizable number of people ha- have walked this world in the business community punishing themselves for something they did when they were very young and not forgiving themselves for it. And the other, the other thing that they have commonly done that is unforgiving toward themselves is set standards um, that are so brittle and so perfectionistic that there's no way they could do things in life without continually disappointing themselves and um, being hard on themselves. Um, what it what it really boils down to is that they they become the source of punishment for themselves and. They will actually unconsciously, without knowing it, take vengeance on themselves for having made what they perceive to be stupid mistakes, and uh, that then holds them back profoundly. It'll hold them back from dealing with large sales. It'll hold them back from dealing with people who are very successful. Uh, it's it's surprising how much impact self punishment and the lack of forgiveness toward self can influence or limit uh, that which you're getting accomplished in life. Well, and I couldn't agree more. How do you go about forgiving yourself? First of all, I don't believe you have to give up high standards in order to forgive yourself. In, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, if you read that through, is frighteningly high. The standards are essentially impossible to pass. And so the underlying manner in which it's recommended that we cope with the fact that we never can fully conform to those high expectations is that uh, we are forgiven and loved by uh, the community and loved by uh, God as we see him. That in itself gives us the stability to go ahead and risk making mistakes over and over again. The the net result is that when you go out then in life to take risks, you can assume from the beginning that you're going to do things that will embarrass you, that will disappoint you about yourself. And um, it is in fact the willingness to take those risks that makes forgiveness so valuable and uh, makes a a perception of our lovableness uh, 
to God and to others uh, so essential to our success. And so the ability then to be forgiving is in proportion, in some sense, to the ability to be successful. It absolutely is. If it is based on the assumption that regardless of how you mess up, you still can be a a person who is loved, reassuring yourself that you're going to be loved by a higher being that is very powerful in your life can make a tremendous difference when you go out to take the kinds of risks that you have to take every day. Absolutely. And why would we treat ourselves worse than a higher being would treat us? Now, have you seen the psychological benefits from people forgiving themselves? What what are they? What do you start to see when people begin to forgive themselves? Well, first of all, they, they now have permission to be human. And you're always messing up on the standards, but if you... Uh, forgive yourself for uh, not having met the mark over and over again. That in itself is an affirmation of your own humanity, your own fallibleness in life. And um, it's uh, it's very much like um, the the old concept of uh, uh, man is sinful. Uh, is actually, that actually can be a very reassuring concept if you forgive, uh, if you forgive yourself and say, okay, I'm going to screw up this way, this way, and this way, and I know that, uh, and uh, you forgive yourself from the get-go. That's, I think, what then happens is you lose your fear about making mistakes. You lose your fear about disapproval. And most important, you don't waste a lot of energy punishing yourself in private. When you think about what we do with ourselves in private, all you have to do is stop and ask, what kind of a friend am I to myself when I get off by myself? Do I recount all the old ugly things that I'm ashamed of? Or am I uh, rehearsing the, the wonderful wins and am I rehearsing the wonderful way people treated me even when I messed up. It depends on what I choose to notice uh, that determines whether I'm going to be a good and effective friend to myself. And that in itself empowers me to go out with energy exactly. and uh, succeed. Well, and you think about it. I mean, how much amazing ability does it take to go out there and try to create a, a career when you've just spent the last hour and a half berating yourself. That's exactly right. You know, I mean, I can't imagine uh, the kind of courage in some sense it takes for anyone to pick up the phone after that. That's right. I mean, I just want to lie down and and (laughs) weep, you know. Um, The the only thing I see that's good about getting older is I've forgotten a lot of the early mistakes. There's one other dimension to this that I might mention that has, uh, if, if you find yourself being unforgiving of others, then you automatically assume that other people are going to feel the same way about you. And so when you look at the whole idea of what forgiveness is about when it's directed toward other people, there are some essential rules that I think are really crucial. Um, and I would, I would put, put it this way. 
the most dangerous assumption we can make when we forgive somebody else is simply to forget that anything ever happened. They, the old puritanical idea that if you really forgive someone, you never, you never think about it at all. The truth of the matter is forgiveness is a multidimensional experience where the first thing you have to do is abandon vengeance. None of us have a right to take out our rage on somebody who has offended us, nor do we have a right to take out that rage on ourselves if we have embarrassed ourselves. So the first, the first move in forgiveness is to let go of the idea that you get to be the executioner, you get to be the one who has a right to punish yourself or someone else. Secondly, uh, it is important that we hold ourselves and other people accountable. Forgiveness is not discarding accountability. In fact, uh, the, the recommendation that's made um, in uh, the New Testament is if someone has offended you and caused you unnecessary pain, then you go to them directly and you explain to them what it is they've done. And if that doesn't work, then you take a friend and the two of you go talk with them. And if they still don't have an understanding of where you are, you take four or five people. But the whole idea of accountability is that there is something essential in that that, that maintains the integrity of a relationship. So what you're looking for when you hold someone accountable at the first stage is you want a show of empathy. That is, a show from them that they understand what pain they have contributed. Now, when that has to do with yourself personally, you've got to show an understanding that the mean things that you say to yourself are unacceptable. And then secondly, some sense of remorse or unhappiness about the fact that we would be mean to ourselves or someone else. So we look for empathy and remorse, and um, from there, if we get that, um, we ask for undoing. Well, when it's with somebody else, basically, you're looking for them to compensate or to fix that which they damaged. When you do that same thing with yourself personally, You've got to stop and ask the question, okay, I just really inflicted harm on myself uh, with the ugly thing I said to me while I was all by myself. And how can I fix that? What can I do to be kind and loving to myself? Rather than thinking that that's okay, I mean, there, it's, there's so many, so much information out there that abuse is wrong, but somehow or other people haven't internalized that, that inner right. abuse is as wrong as outer abuse. Absolutely. And there's no way you can abuse yourself without abusing others. I'm sure. Uh, that's part of the problem, and there's no way ultimately that can, you can re- abuse others without ultimately um, doing the same thing to yourself. So let's say that you ask for undoing, and then you truly expect change. Uh, you not only expect the other person to be enough concerned about what they've done with you, that they'll make some changes, but you expect yourself 
to not do that kind of mean stuff to yourself anymore. Then finally, you begin to watch for patterns to see if you really are making the changes you need to make. And in the case of other people, if they're beginning to make the changes they need to make, and there's a good reason for that. Making the decision to not take vengeance is not the same thing as making yourself, uh, as putting basically putting yourself in harm's way. Uh, we don't, as far as respons- responsibility goes, uh, have a, for, uh, a responsibility to make ourselves vulnerable to abuse if someone is still abusing and they are unable to empathize. And the same thing is true with how we treat ourselves. If we have been uncaring and abusive of ourselves, which occurs mostly when we're by ourselves, then we have a responsibility to structure ways to protect us from that kind of punishment, whether it's self-punishment or not. And once you have structured your life so that there's less uh, meanness coming from you internally toward you, uh, it can make a tremendous difference. And how would you structure that when it's in private? Uh, To give you a simple example, I had a, a lady one time who was suffering uh, profound migraine headaches. What we did was we had the headache talk with her. And uh, when she verbalized what the headache was saying, the headache was being unbelievably critical and abusive and telling her that she was uh, bad in the job that she did, she was going to get fired, that um, her family was going to abandon her. They made all kinds of ugly, unhappy predictions. And when we took a look at when that was occurring, it was occurring while she was washing dishes. And I asked, um, is there anybody else around in the house? She said, no, I'm all alone. And I said, so when you are alone by yourself, that's when you begin to say these mean things to you. And it was at that point she identified that this was someone from her history when she was a child and so she turned to that person and basically said next time I'm lonely and uh, working hard in the house I'm not going to bring you back to keep me company she said I'm going to dry my hands off and I'm going to go visit a neighbor one of the ways you can protect yourself is to get in a circumstance where it's difficult for you to be mean to yourself or to have uh, backup support. So I, I notice I'm being mean. I notice I start feeling bad, and I stop, and I go and listen to my favorite music, or I call my best friend. Or maybe you're in a sales support group, and the part of the function of that group is to keep your energy up and to be nice to you. It's very simple kinds of things that we can do to isolate ourselves from taking vengeance on ourselves just because we've made a mistake. It's amazing, isn't it, how how really self-critical we all are. Yes. Why do we hold on to these hurt feelings and non-forgiveness? What do we get from that? It's familiar. Most of the stuff that we keep around that is uncomfortable is there because it at least is familiar to us. Hmm. And uh, so if we 
can recognize that, then we don't have to keep doing that same thing over and over again. Hmm. I can say this is the same old shoe. It still doesn't fit. It still feels bad, but I'm keeping it here because I haven't figured out what to do with it, right? That's right. And the and the reality is uh, we usually stay around the familiar because we've developed the skill to deal with that. Jerry, once again, I want to thank you so much for your wisdom and your, and your thoughts here. And thank you so much for thank being with us. Now, we've heard all the reasons of why it's a good idea to forgive ourselves or others, and I think intuitively we all know that. Nobody wants to walk around feeling bad about themselves or other people that they've cared for. But how do we do it? There's the real question. I want to give you some forgiveness exercises. One of the things I do over and over again with people is I have them deal with the issue of grief and forgiveness, because if they don't, it keeps them blocked from personal success. Here are three ways to work on forgiveness of yourself or other people and finally let it all go. If you choose to forgive yourself and others, here's the first process I'd like you to do. Number one. I'd like you to write a letter that you don't send. Now, let me say that again. Don't send this letter. This letter is to the person that you are mad at or unforgiving of or to yourself if you're giving yourself a hard time about something that you failed at or haven't done correctly. And in this letter, you go through the steps of the grief process. Those steps are these. Denial, bargaining, sadness, anger, depression, and resolution. Now, denial basically means that you're denying that it ever happened, and so you have to write about how you've been denying it. Bargaining is how you tried to fix it. You tried to avoid them. You tried not to think about it. You tried to maybe talk to them, and it didn't work, whatever the bargaining steps were. Sadness, anger, and depression are the ones that keep people stuck, and you're stuck in the emotional area that you won't deal with. If you're like many people I deal with who are very nice, wonderful women, they don't have permission to be angry. And so they walk around thinking all the reasons why it was their fault or why someone else did something to them and they should feel bad about it, but they don't deal with the anger in the situation. If you're like one of these folks, then you need to talk about the anger predominantly. In this letter, that you don't send, you're going to write out your anger. You're going to say why you're angry. You're going to protest. You're going to say why it wasn't fair or right, whatever they did. And you're also going to talk about your sadness and your depression over this event. We never get stuck in forgiveness with people who don't matter to us. So whoever it is, you've cared about them. And those feelings need to be processed. At the end of the letter, you say, I release you and all the negative energy I have about this episode, and I release myself. I choose to be done with these feelings. Now, when you're doing this letter, you can feel all these feelings. You may cry. You may get angry. That's good because you need to process the feelings. The problem with feelings is that they get stuck. Not that they are flowing. If their feelings are flowing, meaning you're feeling them, crying, being angry, they're moving out. And that's what you want them to do. So whatever you feel during this process, it's good. You may need to do it three or four times to truly be done. But I can guarantee you, 
if you really take the time to do this, you will start moving through that chunk of uh, forgiveness or anger or frustration that's been sitting inside of you. Number two, another way to do forgiveness is an exercise that I have in my book called Stop Self-Sabotage. This exercise is a forgiveness exercise. What I want you to do is to sit quietly with your eyes closed. Breathe very deeply. Now see yourself going down a flight of stairs. There are 30 steps. Slowly count them down, one at a time, until you reach the bottom. The bottom, you enter a lovely room that is filled with wonderful white light. Take a seat and see yourself talking with the person that you haven't let go of. Say everything you want to say about your hurt, frustration, or rejected feelings. After you've said all you need to say, tell the person this phrase, I forgive and release you. I forgive and release myself. I'm going to be done with this painful event. See the two of you enveloped in white light and leave in peace. This is a wonderful exercise to help you cleanse and keep being done with the pain of lack of forgiveness. You know, I love a phrase, here it is, called, Forgiveness is giving up all hopes for a better past. We have to let go of it to have a good future. The last exercise I want you to do is called the Museum of Past Hurts. I want you to see a museum and describe what it looks like. You can write this out, or you can talk it, or you can think it. I want you to see all the primary exhibits, and these exhibits are going to be the hurts that you've had in your life, the losses in your career, the people who haven't called you back, the uh, people who you've loved and it hasn't worked out with, whatever it happens to be, the losses in your life. They're the art that's hanging on the walls. I want you to see the hurt Go through all the rooms describing the hurts on display and be very descriptive and graphic about that in your mind. Then I want you to walk out, walk away from the museum, and see yourself blowing it up. And then I want you to begin a new day. The Museum of Past Hurts is a way of reviewing everything that's hurt you and putting an end to it by literally exploding it out of your life. These three exercises are guaranteed to help you let go and walk into the light of forgiveness. We're in our leading expert section, and I am talking to Nancy Conrad. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Pat. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good. Thank you so much for being on the program here. You know, Nancy, you and I are friends, and I know that you have an amazing story around the issue of forgiveness, and you had a tragic event in your life. And I just wanted you to ask you if you're willing to share that with us and tell us a little bit about what happened, and then we'll talk about what you did with it. Basically, I mean, I had the great good fortune to be married to an incredible man whose name was Pete Conrad. And Pete flew four missions in space. He flew Gemini 5, Gemini 11. Apollo 12, which meant he was the commander of the third landing, pardon me, the second landing on the moon, which made him the third guy to step foot on the moon. Wow. And then he also flew Skylab, which was our first space station. And uh, the lab was damaged on launch, and he and his crewmate, uh, Joe Irwin, who was the first medical doctor in space, rescued the lab, and for that, Pete was awarded the Congressional Space Medal of Honor. 
and he was just a phenomenal human being. I mean, uh, Tom Wolfe wrote the first four chapters of The Right Stuff, focused on Pete Conrad. He was a character. He was lively. He was funny. He was full of life. He was um, delightfully never full of himself, and he was one of those people that just wore celebrity in such a wonderful and humble way, and he was just profoundly and elegantly himself. Um, I guess of all the astronauts, he was probably the one that most of the guys wanted to go have a drink with, because he was a great cut-up, and he was a, a great storyteller, and just a lot of fun. His life had not been without adversity. He was a dyslexic child, and he got thrown out of a very prestigious school, and uh, his mother had the good sense to take him by the ear and put him in another school that had a reputation for dealing with problem children, and from that, he um, ended up with a scholarship to Princeton and, of course, the trip to the moon. He was very hard at work on the next generation of space vehicles and new technologies and in working on satellite technologies. And I used to say that he was going back to space not as an explorer but as an entrepreneur. And, I mean, he, just, he was just a really phenomenal human being that I was just so blessed to, to have spent my a good portion of my life, my adult life, with. And uh, it was hard to be an adult with Pete because he always thought, well, growing old might be mandatory, but growing up was optional. So <laughs> he just he just decided that wasn't going to happen. And he yeah. was just full of beans and full of life and full of fun. And we had a ball together, and we traveled all over the world, and we got to hang out with some pretty cool people. And it's sort of one of the perks of, of being in that world. And... There were just so many stories I could tell you about him, but mm, I guess the story you want to know is what happened. Why am I involved in forgiving anything, and, and what are we here to talk about today? And so I will tell you that on July 8th, a few years ago, my husband went on a motorcycle ride with a bunch of guys up to, uh, he was on his way up to Monterey, California, and it was a rally that a bunch of guys used to do up the Laguna Seca racetrack up there. He'd always wanted to do the ride, and uh, finally he decided, okay, it was time. And uh, I received a phone call that morning that just changed everything and that just took this perfect, wonderful life and this perfect, wonderful man, and, and everything came to a screeching halt. And Pete had been in an accident uh, on his motorcycle, and he was taken to a small community hospital, um, just like so many community hospitals around this country. And I was told that he had some broken ribs, and I was told to bring the big car. We had a small car and a big car, and that because he had the broken ribs, I would have to, you know, put him in the back seat of the big car to bring him home. And this is upsetting, but it's not horrible. No, I mean, you think, well, broken ribs, big deal, you know. I mean, people do survive broken ribs, and I wasn't really, I mean, I was upset. I mean, I'd say, gee, I was not delighted to hear that my husband had been in an accident, but it it didn't occur to me that it was at all life-threatening. Of course, of course. And I jumped in the car, the, quote, big car, and I started the ride up north, which took about three and a half hours. And uh, I called from the freeway, and I spoke to the doctor in the emergency department, and she informed me that they had found some bleeding and that he was in surgery, but not to worry that everything was going to be just fine. I got to the 
hospital, and I walked in and uh, went up to the reception desk there, and I said, I'm Mrs. Conrad, and my husband's here. And they said, well, we don't have a Conrad here. And I said, well, wait a minute. I just talked to this doctor so-and-so, and she said, that, oh, yes, just a moment. So with that, this doctor comes out and says to me, Mrs. Conrad, your husband is very grave. And no explanation, no conversation, no nothing. With that, I was whisked off to a hospital room where some of the folks from the motorcycle ride were waiting. And we sat there, and we sat there for endless hours. I I don't even know how many hours. I guess I could retrace it and figure it out for you, but it seemed like an eternity, and no one came and talked to us, and nobody said a word. And finally, this doctor walks in, one that I had never met. I didn't know who he was, and didn't introduce himself to anybody, but he said, which of you is Mrs. Conrad? And I said, well, I am. And he said, uh, well, he's dead. Oh, my gosh. And that was it. Oh. And he walked out of the room. You know, no one ever talked to me from that hospital, and the only person that I ever heard from was a highway patrolman who phoned me later because he was in shock that Pete had died because Pete was conscious at the scene. Right. It just was such a shock. You know, I I look at it now, Pat, and I think there are three things Pete's caregivers could have done to have helped me. They could have told me what happened. They could have told me how it happened. And they could have told me what they would do so that it would never happen again. Uh-huh. I began a course of what to do, what to do with information that was coming to me through all sorts of sources. And I called the hospital and I got his medical records. And I began to read and I began to have friends read and, and try to understand what had happened there. Because, you know, when you are left in the dark, fear is your worst enemy. Of course. So I just really tried to understand. Well, what became incredibly clear to me very quickly was that here was a man, my husband, who had spent his entire life in high-performance systems that were built for safety. I mean, my God, he rode a bomb to the moon. <laughs> and, and here he was, that he'd, he'd spent his whole life in these high-performance systems, and All these systems were built for safety, and then he ends up in a place where safety should be a given, and he's not safe. The irony is astounding. So I quite honestly just didn't know what to do about it. And, of course, people flocking to you, trying to help, trying to be with you, I'm sure are suggesting to you that there was medical malpractice here. I did go and visit with some lawyers and... uh, I came away from it, and I really just took counsel from Pete. Um, I just thought, you know, God, here's a guy who, who put his life at risk all the time to accomplish something that was far greater than he was. So I sort of sat there, and on one hand I thought, sue him, and then I went, no, fix him. Sue him, fix him, sue him, fix him. <laughs> I went for the fix him. Yes. And it is about the hardest thing I have ever tried to undertake in my life. But then when I think about Pete trying to go to the moon, that took seven years of hard training and tough duty. So I certainly don't complain about it. And I am just one of so many hundreds and hundreds of people working in patient safety and healthcare improvement. And I'm trying to do my best to boil a cup of the ocean. I mean, it's a huge problem. We right. have 
medical error is rampant in the United States, unfortunately, and the statistics that I'm hearing are, are that about every hour, 24-7, 21 people are dying from medical error. We've started a small foundation to improve the quality of care in community hospital emergency departments because the problem is so huge, and, and this is our cup of the ocean, and we really began where Pete's life ended and the effort is really to try and do a system redesign. We're basing our um, systems on, on aviation and aerospace and trying to bring those systems of safety that, after all, kept Pete safe mm-hmm. heading to the moon right? and adapting those into the healthcare environment. And I am so fortunate, Pat, because I am working with top leaders in the field that have just been incredible, and we have collaboratives with everybody from NASA to the Institute of Medicine and... It's, it's been fantastic. I think what we've tried to do as well, again, a hard path, but a pure path is, you know, where do you get funding for something like this? There's all kinds of hospitals and drug companies that would like to fund you, but then you get leveraged by them and suddenly it's all about them mm-hmm. rather than improving quality of care. So we decided to try and get our funding through the government which, by the way, my dear, is the hardest path you could oh, possibly bet. find. I bet. Uh, we just keep getting bloody foreheads, and we keep trying, and we keep <laughs> plugging away. And, but you're doing uh, it in, in memory of Pete, too. It's I mean, all in memory of Pete, and it's in honor of Pete, and it's, it's dedicated to improving health care, which is at high risk right now. Now, I have to tell you that one of the things that the hospitals will get after a year's work with us is a Performance Excellence Transfer Enterprise Award, and that spells Pete. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so it is very much in honor of him. In this process, and it's been a number of years now for you, but in this process, I'm sure there was a time where you were, as you said, between going through suing them or fixing them, and, and basically that's revenge or forgiveness. Can you just share with us a little bit um, what happened inside of you that made you take this path of forgiveness? I'm not too bright. (laughs) I'm kidding. No. You know, I think that you just come to a place where Pete used to always say, life's too short. Mm -hmm. And my thinking was, what would I possibly accomplish by suing them that would be, it would be so small, not from the point of view of, of self, but, but it's a, it's, doesn't have any impact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they write a check, and then they just go on and do it again. Exactly. And so I thought, where do you take this and make it bigger and make it better? And I think that any time, what I was going through right after I found out that it was a system failure that killed him, I went through rage, I went through hopelessness, I went through despair, and the longer I was kept in the dark, the worse it was. Mm -hmm. Once I began to take action, and once I began to take what was so negative and so painful and so desperate and such a tragic end to such a beautiful life and tried to put some positive energy behind that and turn it around, that's when I began to heal. And, and the more energy I put into making something positive out of this, the better I felt and the more I felt like I was doing honor to Pete mm-hmm. 
and really doing something that, that could create change. Yes. And that yes. became the goal. That, that says it so well, Nancy, because, you know, I think that we all struggle with the issues of forgiveness. Most of us do not have as tragic a story as yours. Uh, but most of us don't have then the option to make so much good happen out well, of it. But the choice comes down to where, where are we going to put our energy? Well, I, I coined a word, Pat. It's called obstrutunity. <laughs> it's when you have an obstacle and you turn it into an opportunity. An obstrutunity. Obstrutunity, <laughs> yeah. I'm very sure I can and say that. And I mean, that. I was given such a gift, and we were all given such a gift. I mean, this man left... And I don't mean it in some woo-woo sort of a way, but, but the truth is, I mean, if, if we didn't do this, then it doesn't mean anything. Uh-huh. Then his, the way he left has such ability to drive high impact and to create change. And, and by trying to do what we're trying to do, it is an inversion. It is an opportunity, and it is a, a, a way to honor him and a way to save other lives. You know, it's like your rape victims that want to go out and help people. You can't just say, oh, my God, I was raped, and sit down and cry forevermore about it. You better go do something. Mm -hmm. And this was all I could think of, and and I was blessed to have people at hand and resources and the ability to pick up a phone. And I'll tell you what else I learned in this thing. The friends that you have... When, when you are confronted with something that is so life-changing, mm-hmm. your friends become so important, your friends, your family, your, your religion, whatever it is you turn to that gives you a support system yes. becomes so incredibly important, and that is so much a process that, that gets folded into the forgiving Mm-hmm. The act of forgiving. That's true. That's very true. And and you were blessed to have so many people come to your side. And well, yeah, and people who knew how to help. Yeah. Um, people that knew about healthcare. People that knew where to send me. Um, I, I'll share with you a small story. When I first found out that that this was medical error, I thought, Oh God, what do I do with this? And I called Betty Ford because she's a friend of mine. And I said, Betty, what do I do? She says, oh, my way in. She said, don't do what I did. She said, because Betty created a foundation. She built a building. She had to change laws to do what she did. She said, honey, you go find whoever is the holy grail in healthcare improvement, and you just go put your pony on their wagon. And I had the great good fortune to know who the people were to call to find who that holy grail was. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I began networking and networking to get to the right place so that I could put my pony on the wagon and we could begin to drive change. And that's when everything changed for me, Pat, because like I say, it took all the negative and all the pain and all the hurt and began to invert it into something positive, and it was action. That just gives me chills, you know. I mean, it's so... Powerful. I mean, I I think that most of us hear your story and think, would I have the courage? Would I have the ability? And um, you know, don't think I didn't ask those questions. I'm sure, and I still do. I'm sure. Yeah. I still do. I mean, every day I think, oh, what am I doing? <laughs> Why am I doing this? <laughs> My forehead's so bloody from trying to to get this thing going and rolling and doing. And it's not easy. Nothing's easy. No, Nothing no, nothing's easy. Is easy. So.
but it's worthwhile and it's given you a new life and a new focus. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said, it's honored Pete in a way that he deserves to be honored. Absolutely. Yeah. And it has the great side effect of saving lives. I mean, what more could you ask for? That is so wonderful, Nancy. And I just think you're such a wonderful example of taking a really horrible situation and making so much more and better out of it. And, and you know, what it did for you, too, I think that's what I want to stress to the people listening, is that had you gone down the suing anger revenge line, you'd probably still be in it. Oh, and yeah. and it takes your life yeah, as well. It, it sucks you dry. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it takes your life force, and that was what I thought about too, honey. When I when I decided to walk away from that, mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I'm in enough pain here. Right. And and part of that decision was selfless, and part of the decision was very selfish because I thought this is going to do nothing but keep this death dying for, for two to three years. Exactly, and re-traumatize you. Oh. Every it's time. a constant, constant yeah. thorn in your paw. You never get rid of that pain. I'm not opposed to money. Make no, no, no mistake. I'm not opposed to it. But I thought, well, so what does that do? But there's no, there's no love in it. No. You know, and, and what you're doing now is an act of love. You know, not what's only very f- interesting. I've found out, too, in, in part of what I, I talk about, I've, I've spoken to almost every medical group on the planet, and I've done a lot of speeches about this. And, and we just put my speech on video, and a lot of the hospitals are ordering it because there is a big problem with patient safety. But what I've learned is when doctors disclose, and, and there's a lesson in here, when, when truth is there and doctors disclose that the incidence of litigation actually goes down. So I guess if you can convert that into human terms, when we tell the truth and when we bring out what we really feel and what's really happening... The incidence of anger, and, you know, that's all fear, that goes down. So I guess if you take that into a really interpersonal level, the more we shoot straight with each other, the more we just tell it like it is, the more we can deal with each other uh, in an eyeball-to-eyeball situation and not have to go through issues where we do have to forgive. It kind of just goes away. Yes, yeah, and I and probably part of the rage you felt was just the treatment. Yeah, as you said, you know, well, that, the longer you're left in the dark, the more fear that grows, the more anger that grows, and you know, if you take that into your personal relationships, it's same thing. I mean, if if you and I have had words against each other, and I walk away and we don't talk about it, it's just it grows. It just eats it, on it us. It festers and it gets uglier. And then we do have to forgive because now we have an argument. Exactly. But if we confront it in the first place and I say, you know, Pat, that really hurt my feelings. It's mm-hmm. over. That's so true, Nancy. And so that's so profound. And it's so true. And it's, it's very tough for us to do because we all like to duck. You know, we all hope it, it will go away, which yep. it never does. It never does. And it only gets worse. That's and right. I, you know, I've learned so many things from this, Pat. And I mean, I wished it never happened. Of course. But of course. it happened, and i got to deal with it, and i got to cope with it. But it has been... Pete continues to teach me, so I just hmm. continue to listen to him. Oh, that's wonderful, Nancy. Well, you're an inspiration to us all, and I really thank you so much for sharing with us. And I know people listening to this are going out there and saying, oh, my gosh, you know, what a wonderful story, what a wonderful person, and what a wonderful eulogy to the husband you love so much. Well, 
you know, if, if it can motivate one person, we've done a good thing. That's right. That's right. One person at a time. Thank you, Nancy. Oh, Pat, thank you. And thank you for the good work you do. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes and all other Hot Pie Media originals baked fresh daily at our home on the web at hotpiemedia.com, the Hot Pie Media YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts.